you can't help also but be a little reflective and think about whether we're alone in the universe and how tiny, tiny, tiny we are. Hey guys, I'm Ezra David Romero. And I'm Carrie Klein. This is Outdoorsy, a podcast from Valley Public Radio. We take you to wild places in Central California and introduce you to people who explore them. Okay, you know it, we know it. Summer in the Valley is hot, really hot. So hot, we know that even if we had an awesome activity to talk about, most of you probably wouldn't do it, at least not during the day. Instead, we've got an idea for something cool to do after the sun has retreated below the horizon. Stargazing. I was a total nerd as a kid. I had a mini telescope, which I confess I couldn't see anything out of. I'd set it up on a flatbed truck on the peach farm I grew up on and just stare into the night sky. Sounds kind of amazing. It was a pretty cool childhood. I grew up out in the country at the base of the Sierra Nevada foothills, and here the Milky Way was super visible. And we'd scream every time my friends and I saw a shooting star. <laughs> yeah, I love stars too. I used to stargaze with my dad. And I've always been a sci-fi girl dreaming of space exploration. I would just devour books by Arthur C. Clarke, Ray Bradbury, Carl Sagan. Give me a good story about human nature and the cosmos, and I'm entertained for hours. In this episode, we talk all about gazing into the heavens. We'll go to a star party at Millerton Lake and learn how some people are trying to protect the night sky for future generations. We'll also hear about an upcoming festival dedicated to dark skies in Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks. To find out all about this activity, I found someone that got hooked on stargazing as a kid. I'm 59 years old, and I was about to turn 11 in July of 1969 when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin first walked on the moon. We huddled around a tiny little television in our living room and watched the event live. And then, of course, I went outside, and I wanted to see them, thinking, oh, if I had a telescope, I would be able to watch them. Obviously, you can't do that, but uh, it started me on a lifelong trajectory towards astronomy, and science. Brian Bellis is the star party coordinator for the group Central Valley Astronomers. He's also a science teacher at Hoover High School in Fresno. His group hosts star parties around the valley and in the mountains. So what's a star party? It's basically what the name sounds like. Club members bring their giant telescopes at select spots and invite the public to survey the night sky through them for free. Tonight we're at Millerton Lake in the foothills of Madera County. They have star parties here and at Glacier Point in Yosemite because they're really dark and not that far from Fresno. They also host parties at the River Park Outdoor Shopping Mall in Fresno, but you can't see as much here because of all the lights from the city. Here at Millerton, Brian is showing a family the first glimpse of space in tonight's sky. It's a bright looking star, but it's actually not a star at all. So that's Jupiter and then the what looks like little stars. Those are the four bright moons of Jupiter called Galilean moons. Three of them are really close, and then one of them is farther out to the left. That's Jupiter. That's Jupiter. I see another moon. High five on spotting Jupiter. I see I already gave you a high five. I'll give you another. I see another moon. So, so three real close and then one far away? Yeah, very far away. Just like the horde of kids at the star party asking all sorts of questions, I have some of my own. The first, should I buy a big telescope like his? He says no. If you go out and you buy something inexpensive, like a, a starter telescope, usually those are so frustrating that people give up on them. Uh, it says on the box that it'll go 300 times power, so they buy this thing and uh, give it to the kid, 
It looks great, and they can't even find the moon through it because it's a really crummy telescope. I, think I had one of those growing up. <laughs> Bad optics, a wobbly tripod, they're just frustrating. If you can't spend a few hundred dollars or more on a telescope, I don't recommend a telescope at all. A nice pair of binoculars will serve that child much better looking at the stars and learning the night sky. Okay, so how do telescopes even work? He says there are two basic types, refracting and reflecting. He owns the reflector type that uses a system of mirrors to focus multiple beams of light together, producing a clearer image. In the back of this telescope, there's a big curved mirror. The light comes in, bounces off the curved mirror, and reflects on this mirror that's at, a, at an angle, which shoots the light out toward the eyepiece and into your eye. So if we look at something very, very faint, it can be seen. We're going to look at places in the sky where it doesn't look like there's anything there with the naked eye. But when you look at it through the telescope, all of a sudden it's just full of stars. Brian prefers the reflector type because it's simple to use, and he says it's a lot cheaper than refracting telescopes. The reflector is easier to make a big scope. Uh, the bigger the diameter of the, the opening, called the aperture, the more light the telescope can gather. So you can see fainter things, and you can, you can put more magnification on really small things to see them refractor telescopes are made with lenses and uh, it's very expensive to make a big big lens. Okay so for beginners he's recommended binoculars to start. What else would I need and what if I want to go a little bit deeper? He also says it's helpful to buy a pocket stargazing guide but if you're really hooked and want to drop a couple G's on a telescope Brian has a few recommendations. I would suggest something that is fairly simple to a Dobsonian telescope, the tilt and swivel type telescope, is a nice easy mount and it's very easy to learn to use. If you're not interested in trying to learn where things are in the sky, you probably don't want to have a completely manual telescope because one of the things you're going to need to do is, is find things in your telescope. You'd want something with the electronics that'll find stars for you. That's what this is. So Ezra, what was the coolest thing you saw out there? At one point, he programmed his telescope to look at a bright light that looks like a star to the naked eye, but it ended up being way more. So I'm looking for a cluster of stars? Yeah, it's right in the middle. Oh, wow. That's some real Nova stuff. <laughs> like, the pictures you see. Yeah. Like, Whoa. So that's probably uh, a quarter of a million stars. Looks amazing. close together. All those stars were probably born around the same time. That awe in my voice is exactly what keeps Brian and his friends traveling to remote spots across California to find the darkest skies possible. The blacker they are, the clearer planets and stars appear in a telescope. I never fail to be amazed. You can't help also but be a little reflective, pardon the pun, when you're out here and looking at something that thousands of light years away consisting of millions or billions of stars and think about whether we're alone in the universe and how tiny, tiny, tiny we are clinging to this tiny little ball. So in order to enjoy those billions and billions of stars, Ezra, you have to be able to see them. And as you talked about at the star party, the sky can look vastly different in rural and urban areas, primarily because of light pollution. Yeah, I camp all the time, and the further I get away from civilization, the better the night sky looks. 
In Cedar Grove and Kings Canyon National Park, the stars are off the hook. Exactly. And many of us may feel like those differences are inevitable. That, of course, cities and hotels and dense neighborhoods will always be bright. But what if they didn't have to be? Many groups argue that with a few interventions, we can get all the light we need down here and keep it from bleeding up into the night sky. Meet Pete Strasser. I remember as a five-year-old trying to capture Comet Ikiaseki with a camera. I failed, but it, it sparked my interest. Uh, to me, it was more important as a first grader to see that than to go trick-or-treating. And Nancy Emerson. I think that it's one of the important ways that we find wonder in life. It never fails to bring awe to people when they can see stars in the night sky. The two of them are night sky advocates. Pete is based in Arizona and is technical director of the International Dark Sky Association, a nonprofit that raises awareness of light pollution in order to reduce it. Nancy is the president of the association's Santa Barbara chapter. They consider night skies to be a natural resource and one that we're rapidly losing, especially in developed countries. One recent study suggests that the vast majority of the U.S. and Europe can't see the Milky Way clearly, if at all. And think about how recently that happened, that electric lights have become this widespread. Well, seeing the stars at night um, has been a human legacy. Every human on the planet up until about 100 years ago saw the same nighttime sky wherever they were going back generation after generation in the arts, in the uh, folklore, uh, just uh, in cultures in general. So much of that connection has been eliminated, blotted out by poor lighting practices. And that, that's a shame. I can imagine it harms a natural world as well. Yeah, there are ecological reasons to protect the night sky, too. Research has shown light pollution can disrupt sea turtles, which need dark places to lay their eggs and navigate using the light of the stars and moon. Artificial light can also interfere with the migration of birds and fish. But Pete and Nancy want to be clear about something. So we're not about turning off all the lights. Our edict is to simply go back to what is the task of lighting. It has a purpose. It's light when you need it, where you need it, in the amount necessary, and no more. All else is waste. So by thinking actually about where you're putting the light, how much light you actually need, and the quality of light that's there, that can be done through excellent design and good design of the fixtures themselves. So what does design mean? A light is a light, right? Not exactly. You can change when the light is on and where it points. When you're indoors, for instance, you turn off the light when you leave a room, right? You can do similar things with your outdoor lights or turn off lights that don't have a purpose. But say you're in a high crime neighborhood and you keep a floodlight on by your back door. Reducing light pollution doesn't mean turning that light off and risking a break-in. It means putting a hood over the bulb to cut down how much is shining away from your property or putting it on a motion sensor so it's only on when it needs to be. What about street lights? Those are on all the time, right? Right. And for safety reasons, most of them are not going to be on motion sensors, but they can be directed primarily toward the ground as well. Pete says a common example of poor design is those old-timey streetlights you see in Old Town Clovis or downtown Bakersfield that look like acorns on wrought iron posts. Those are utilized primarily because they look pretty in the daytime. And that is why they are beloved by city councils and mayors, because it gives sort of a, an old, old-fashioned, homey appearance to a neighborhood. But at night, the emission from those, half of the light is going upwards, and it's a terrible waste of energy. 
It's fiscally irresponsible. It causes glare and it obliterates the sky. Nothing good comes from them except for giving a quaint appearance during daytime. Pete says even the color of light can be important. A lot of newer, more efficient lights are LEDs, which can be fantastic, but often their wavelengths mimic bright white sunlight, which can be disruptive to animals and even humans who have insomnia or are otherwise sensitive to light. So how can communities actually reduce their light pollution? Well, that's a lot of what Nancy tries to do. A lot of it involves raising awareness among homeowners and local businesses, but she also petitions local governments for new ordinances. Cities and counties can be designated dark sky places, and California just updated its residential lighting regulations to cut back on light pollution. Nancy says in 2008, there was even a big nod to light pollution right here in the valley. People got together in Kern County. I think some of them were amateur astronomers. Others were in the Audubon Society and and bird lovers. And together they worked with county government and got a countywide outdoor lighting ordinance that is really helping to change things there. It's called the Dark Skies Ordinance, and it puts limits on things like the height of residential lights and the direction of floodlights at sporting events. So if I want to improve the lighting at my apartment, it probably means spending a lot of money at specialty lighting stores, right? Or a pricey upgrade of my electrical system. No, not necessarily. Some poor lighting can be fixed with LED bulbs, timers and motion sensors, or directional fixtures, which you can generally find in the same stores where you've always bought lights. Financially, it it wouldn't be much at all. Operationally, by using a nice warm-colored LED, using 4 watts instead of 60 for an incandescent. So there's a tremendous energy savings associated with that. So it's a good idea to do it. Hearing this, I'm inspired, but I'm kind of overwhelmed. There are a lot of causes to get behind right now. So I asked Nancy, where does light pollution fit in compared to all the other issues competing for our attention? Part of the problem for people in our society is that a lot of times they feel helpless, that they can't do anything. But this is one problem, as Pete says, it's solvable. We can have it all. We can have the lighting we need on the ground. We can have the night sky. So it makes for a finer quality of life for humans, for the wildlife, even for plants. Where else do you find an issue that's solvable at this time? as quickly as this one is. Interested in learning more? Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks are throwing their fourth Dark Sky Festival starting July 21st. Savannah Boyana with the Sequoia Park Conservancy is organizing the event. She also helps operate the front desk at the Lodgepole Visitor Center. Hello, how's it going? Good, welcome to Sequoia National Park. How can I help you today? So I'm wanting to like do a Savannah says the Mostly Free Festival is all about educating visitors on the importance of the night skies and inspiring them to advocate for them in their own communities. The festival began here four years ago after one of the Conservancy's employees went to a dark sky festival in the Rocky Mountains. A dark sky festival is a celebration and it is a way for all of us to become acquainted with what dark skies are, the value of dark skies for plants and animals, including humans, the health benefits of dark skies. This year is the largest festival ever in the park and will host multiple star parties and over 30 sessions for the public. 
There's sessions on Friday. There are sessions on Saturday. There are sessions on Sunday. The sessions start at 10 a.m. every day, and most days go until 9 or 10 at night. If you would like to, you can even go study extremophiles at Crystal Cave. There will be uh, three tours a day, 11, 1, and 3, where you can learn about how we use dark spaces on Earth to study outer space. What if a sci-fi kid like me shows up? Any activities for them? Yeah, there'll be an area for kids to train as astronauts where they'll take fitness tests, dress up like them, and use tools they work with in space. There will also be films, star talks with rangers, and viewings of the sun using special telescopes. Well, once they get beyond the major star parties, they're going to find activities such as uh, being able to go out and learn about bats and how bats use the night sky. You can go to meet an astronaut and how we explore space and what role Earth's dark skies play in space exploration. You could learn about dark sky photography. She says attendees can bring a telescope or binoculars, a flashlight, a journal to take notes in, and some way to track what they see in the night sky. She uses an iPhone app as well as a planisphere to track stars and planets. A planisphere is a star chart made of two adjustable disks that rotate to show what stars are out at any given time. Savannah says she loves the festival because learning about night skies opens up the imagination. At a past star party, she was showing a group of kids Saturn through a telescope and something illuminating happened. A student stands up and looks through the telescope and mutters, that's got to be a sticker. And I said, no, it's not a sticker. That's, that's Saturn. It's the planet Saturn. Can you see the rings of Saturn? He said, yeah. And he walks away, and he's kind of, I can tell from his body language, he's a little disappointed, you know. And I can hear him at the end of the line, and he says, man, this class is cheap. They're showing us stickers. He doesn't even know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with it. It's so beautiful. And he said what I couldn't say was, they're so perfect. For Savannah, this encounter was a revelation of how out of touch the public is about the night sky, but also a reminder of how Earth and its beauty fit into the cosmos around us. The perfection of the universe and the perfection of our own planet is really impressive. I think of Michael Collins, who was on the Apollo 11 mission, said, you know, uh, in going to the moon, what we really discovered was the Earth. And I think it's that sentiment that keeps me going through every Dark Sky Festival. And that's today's show. Check out the website for more information about light pollution and the Dark Skies Festival. Share your picture of the night sky on Instagram or Twitter. We're at OutdoorsyPod on both. Our editor is Joe Moore, and we had engineering help from Don Weaver. Our music is by Kevin McLeod and Ben Sound. Stay tuned for future shows when we visit other wild places and interview the people who love them. For Outdoorsy, I'm Ezra David Romero. And I'm Carrie Klein. Thanks for listening. Bye.